0: Asking questions is the most important thing a leader can do. People think it's about issuing orders and directing people, but to influence people, it's about listening to them, helping them come to the answer, figuring out their their black swan is, right? Why they think what they do. And then you can sort of shape things.
1: Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and change makers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. Today, we speak with Chris Miano, founder and CEO of MemoryFox, the software platform that aims to help nonprofits raise funds and stand out on social media by leveraging grassroots content We learn about Chris's journey from Buffalo to Army platoon leader and company commander in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then back home again, and the stories he heard in the field and at home that fueled his passion to make authentic life stories available and accessible at last. Uh, The way you talked about how you came to do the work that you're doing now. (laughs) uh I suppose there are a number of origin stories that you that you tell yeah right, to help, right. To help understand this to help others understand this, but that you talked about your grandfather and his being yeah. in the service in the second world war in the navy right um and uh the the idea of you know capturing his stories or preserving his stories or honoring those stories, whatever they were and it's it's really um it seems like there's a there's a fair amount of narrative that has been written about subsequent conflicts but uh a lot of the reading at least that i've seen about that time comes from third parties it comes from historians or other other biographers and and all of that's terrific Uh, but some of those stories were lost did can you did you know your grandfather well you know, I
0: really didn't. He died when I, I want to say I was like 19, 18. And at that time, you know, you're just you're so focused on your own life as a as a kid. You really don't have an appreciation for how big the world is mm-hmm. and and how much is out there and and not enough of a healthy respect for tradition. And, um you know, the people that came before you that shape who you are. And so, you know, I didn't take the time and I always regret that that I didn't spend more time with him hearing his stories. And so now these things just sort of exist through pictures and through secondhand information. And really, it's one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't spend that time. Um, But, you know, that's that's youth, right? I mean, that's just the circle of life is when you're, you know, you're 17. And if I may, you're full of piss and vinegar. (laughs) You know, you want to take over the world. You think you can do anything. And you think that you exist in a vacuum and you don't appreciate not just what culturally your family shares and passes down to you, but also the genes, the very fabric of your DNA is passed down from them. Your, your insecurities, your fears, your um, you know, whatever, right. A, A lot of the makeup of who you are is, is shaped by the people that came before you. And so if you don't look back at them and you don't understand who they are, you'll never truly know yourself and grow and overcome the challenges that, that that come before you. And so um, that's that's a big part of self-awareness, right? Is And you have to look back, you have to look backward and, and be vulnerable and understand that there are things that you don't control that came to you um, through the people that came before you. And that can be hard for people. Ego is a tough thing. And you think you can take out, you know, you can take on anything, but I think if you look backwards, you can learn a lot about yourself and that can help shape you know, how you act in the
1: future. It is it, interesting because when your grandfather went to went into uh, the war, however I don't know if you know how he uh, how he joined the Navy, if it was through the draft or, you know what it was. But um, he was also probably about that age. So he, 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 he didn't have a narrative or a whole set of questions to ask the people who came before him. And they certainly no one had experienced anything quite like that war. Um, so he was in the same position you would have been in when you were thinking about him. But he must have made a big impression on you anyway. What, what was your impression of this person in the family, even if you didn't ask him a ton of questions, about his relationship, for example, to service?
0: Yeah. Honestly, And this is something that I carry from him is his is his humor, his irreverence. And I think, you know, everybody comes into the military as something and then they come out of it as something different. And maybe he was always like that. And I think he it seems like he always was. But there's something about who was I? I was trying to explain this to my my wife the other day. Is because I am very irreverent, and I always make jokes, even during stressful times. I, I find a way to to make jokes, and um, you know, I think when you are thrust into these conflicts, and you see, uh, well, maybe the depravity is is, is not the word I want to use, but just this this the 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 evil side of the human condition, and this this conflict is made of all just normal people who just want to live their lives, but you're brought into this thing. And you, some people, they become something different, but I, I have always used humor. I remember one time in Iraq, we, you know, one of our vehicles got blown up and uh, it was it was pretty severe, but it was a really strong vehicle called an MRAP. And they're designed to withstand, you know, pretty serious explosions. And so, you know, we recovered the vehicle. We got everybody out of there. Everybody was okay. Some slight concussions, but we were laughing. (laughs) That's all we could do. We were waiting for the recovery vehicles to come get us. And, you know, there were some, some other things that happened that were kind of scary, but we were laughing. And I remember that moment thinking, wow, we are laughing right now. And, uh, You know, and I I think I get that from that, but also from my grandfather is he just had this irreverence for life. You know, he liked he 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 uh, you know, he he uh, served a different God when it came to the idea. He liked to drink. He liked to have a good time, you know, and I think I think I get a little bit of that for him. You know, I'm usually the one having a late conversation with somebody not wanting to go to bed. And am I saying it's time to go to bed. And I'm like, we're just finishing this conversation. Just one, one, one more, one more drink and just we're just hanging out. Um, but I think I get that from him, which is interesting is that that in reverence sort of transfers through. And I think, uh, you know, a long-winded way of explaining that, but I think it's really neat how that happens. And I think if you look backwards at those people, you can see the things that they carried and the things that they passed on to you, and it really teaches you a lot. Yeah, Different ways
1: of surviving and and enjoying what yeah. you got while you've and got
0: you, it. You have to know that stuff. That's right. your survival. Like if you if you are not aware of who you are and what makes what your makeup is, you're going to have a really tough time. And you probably know people like that. We all know people like that are so blocked up that they can't you can't they can't find their way out of it. Um, you know, and 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 you know, there's ways to do that therapy and things like that, or just having good friends that you can talk through. But not everybody has that, or the the ability
1: to do that. So, yeah, yeah not everybody uh, stays up late telling stories, which is another way. Yeah.
0: Cope. <laughs> that's um, the fun. You get the army buddies together, your old high school friends or huh? new friends right. that new dads that you meet, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's part of it too.
1: Now you're from a Buffalo family, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Buffalo is a
0: really interesting place because it's a very old place. Um, and it's a very, um, the people there are uh, very irreverent. <laughs> and I think there's a lot that that goes into that culturally. You know, it used to be one of the brown jewels of the country uh, mm-hmm. way back in the early 1900s. And then, you know, the it became part of the Rust Belt. And, you know, and I think there's a little bit of the Buffalo Bills in us where they lose four Super Bowls. <laughs> and so there's just everybody in that darn city has a chip on their shoulder about one thing or another. And it just, it, it flows in the rivers and uh, you know, but it has, it shaped who I am. Even in the army, people used to be like, man, you got a real chip on your shoulder. So, you know, that's just kind of who I am and it, it helps shape who I am. But, but you also, you know, you have to be aware of it and not let it take over your
1: identity. <laughs> So does this go way back? Is your whole family full of irreverent Buffalonians or what? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We have a lot of fun. You know, And I, I've, it's funny. I was watching some home videos of, uh, of uh, myself. I, you know, every dad back in the early 80s would try to get their hands on a video camera. Of course, those were the cool things. And I think we borrowed one. And there's this video of me getting off the bus and I'm in this like Buffalo Sabres T-shirt that is down to my knees. And of course, I'm just like kicking rocks and things like that. I'm like, I'm still kind of that. My wife goes, you're still kind of that guy. (laughs) You know, you just got real chip on your shoulder about things sometimes. And you just, you know, you want to do it your way. You want to do it your way. And uh, I think that's kind of fun though.
1: Well, so what about the storytelling piece? So sometimes when a person is from a place, that place is either, you know, kind of uh, onto itself. It kind of holds, holds back. In other places, people just let it ride. You know, they, they, they tell stories and that's a part of the fabric of the culture. Is that, is the storytelling piece of your life, did that start also early in your life? Is that part of your family and your place?
0: It really grew over time. I mean, we're, you know, an Italian family, so there's a lot of always storytelling going on and, and, you know, half of which is true. And then you go into the army, which is of course a storytelling organization, um, you know, I mean, whether people are talking about the stories of how they grew up or stick sharing stories is is how you build rapport. It's how you as part of the human existence. Right. And especially when you go to places like Iraq and Afghanistan, you think Americans are storytellers. I mean, these are ancient civilizations that that have stories. They don't go back 300 years. They go back thousands of years. Right. And so. You know, every part of my life has been storytelling has been a piece of it, but I always like to, and this is, this is something that always fascinates me and and I'm new to the nonprofit world, you know, well, three years now, right. It's, we've been doing this for a little bit now, but, um, you know, one thing that I see is, is we think of storytelling as we try to tell nonprofits to tell stories that are star, what I call Star Wars stories, mm-hmm. which are a rise and a fall and a climb. You know, they're not, they're not right. Like we're like we're trying to make a new Harry Potter or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think social media kind of like tries to pull you in that direction. And it's sort of the tail wagging the dog. In the sense of like, well, we need this and, and nonprofits have this impossible task, right, is to try to tell Star Wars stories and about people that have very complicated lives and very complicated problems. And there is no resolution a lot of times, right? A lot of times if you're a fundraiser or you are a program manager or whatever, a volunteer Hmm. You're like Sisyphus pushing a rock up the mountain and that there's no end to it. Right. There's no bow tie. There's no, you know, Darth Vader doesn't get it in the end and then there's a (laughs) resolution and it's just not the way the real world works. Right. And so what I try to think of storytelling and this is, I learned this in the military too. And like throughout life is like stories about stories telling is more like Bruce Springsteen stories. It's snippets it's pictures on an album it's pieces that tell a bigger story, a theme, Yeah. right? And so we, and so, you know, a lot of nonprofits, I think they spend a lot of time trying to get that perfect story from the person who's coming to a food bank, right? I mean, let's face it, right? That person, you know, may have a lot of reasons why they're there. And those reasons don't go away just because they got fed, It's not all They might go to that food bank the rest of their life, right? They may always be relying on this service. So there's no resolution. This is just living. And life is messy and complicated. And that's why I think we really need to appreciate and love nonprofits and not make them – give them these impossible tasks of telling Star Wars stories. And just think of it more as, hey, we're we're just talking about our mission in action, right? We're telling – The stories about our mission, but not Star Wars stories, you know, Um, that's my mission, I feel like, is to try to inspire and try to, you know, make make nonprofits feel comfortable with the stories that they feel like they need to tell, not the stories that social media and and people want them to tell, you know, like I said, the tail wagging the dog.
1: Sure. Well, you just touched on something that I think a lot of people like myself who have not been in the service don't know which is that you go into a place like the army and generations of my family were in the army but i was not and that that's where the stories are told and people may or may not come back and then be able to relate those stories so we'll get to that part next because that's yeah. something that you did through the memory fox and you do now in nonprofits yeah. in general but the idea sure you get together with a bunch of guys who have never met or have only spent a uh, little basic training together or whatever the way uh, the entry yep. point is. like you were at Fort Sill when my mother was born and raised. So I, I, this is a different oh, kind man. of, environment. um, so of is, what, what is it? What is it like in terms of that storytelling? Is it, is it really everybody getting together and just, you know, kind of feeling each other out and feeling safe and developing that trust? How does that storytelling environment develop? It's moments. It's moments. It's that there's nothing. Sit around in a
0: in a in a circle and everybody tells their story. Pass the ball, ice breakers, you know things mm-hmm. like that. It's more organic. You know you're right. you're out at your combat outpost. You know everybody's asleep. You're smoking a cigar, mm-hmm. and a soldier comes walking up, and you know you offer him a cigar, and you chat. You know you chat about their life, where they came from, on. Um, It's, it's, it's more intimate like that, I think, Mm -hmm. and there's so there's a beauty in that. And what's so interesting about the military, which I think it's just such a, it's such a fascinating, fascinating career or something you do for three, eight years. I was in for eight years Mm -hmm. on people from all walks of life. You know, I had, I had soldiers from, you know, South Chicago. He was, he was, he had a gun charge. And he got out of his gun charge by going in the military. (laughs) You know, and here I am from, Mm -hmm. you know, a pretty straight laced kid from Buffalo, um, from a middle class family, you know, got good grades and everything. And then you're thrown into into this. I had soldiers from Compton, from South Bronx, from Connecticut, you know, like every walk of life and you're thrust together Mm -hmm. and everybody's green. Is the concept is everybody's green. And I will tell you that one of the things, the biggest challenges that I had when I got out was that no longer is the case. And you move back to a place like Buffalo, which I love Buffalo up, down, left and right. But there were a lot of unfortunate decisions that were made in terms of the the landscape of the city, Mm -hmm. for example, a, a highway. Going right through the city that separated the white part and the black part, you know, and 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 those battle lines were drawn, you know, during the 70s. And so you come back here and you go out and you're hanging out, you know, in the city and it's there's white side, there's black side, there's the Hispanic side, and it's very segregated. And that was a weird, weird change for me is you didn't there is not as much osmosis that happens between races in a place that's that segregated. Whereas in the military, it would be like, tell me about it. (laughs) Oh, and I had a one soldier tell me he saw his first dead body when he was four years old. It was a dead not to be glib about it, but it was it was a prostitute in a burned out car in a field. And this kid, he was four years old, and think about how that shapes the rest of your life in terms of how you view the sanctity of life and 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 just the things that you know the way the way that you just feel about things. And uh, you know, I don't want to make that didn't define his life, but certainly you don't forget that moment, right? Mm-hmm. And I grew up in a, in a you know not not wealthy, but certainly a middle class neighborhood. I never, you know. I never experienced any def- anything like that. And but if you're empathetic and you really listen to people's stories, you know, you, you learn about that and you elevate them right now. they Now you're connected forever, mm. forever, because you shared a story with somebody and now your lives are forever. And now you're part
1: of each other's story. And I find that so fascinating. It sounds like a big part of that is, is the listening to the story, not just the telling of it.
0: Yeah. And I think. One thing I have learned a lot, I read this book called Just Listen. And unfortunately, I read it too late in life. Um, and now I'm like triggered by it. You know, when you're you've been there, right? In a group of people, and there's one person that every time everybody says something, they have to relate it back to themselves. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes me crazy, right? Because I'm hypersensitive to it is the idea of, of listening to, but really listening to people, not just immediately taking it back to yourself and seeing how it informs you, but asking questions and really diving deep into it. Um, you know, and I think you, you, you can influence like leadership is about that too. And and you learn that in the military. I didn't know it that I was doing it, but I did it Um asking questions is the most important thing a leader can do is is you don't it, people think it's about issuing orders and directing people and it's, certainly that's a big piece of it right but to influence people it is not about telling people what to do it is about listening to them helping them come to the answer figuring out what the their their black swan is right what the thing is that's hiding out there that they why they think what they do and then you can sort of shape things on um, if people spent a lot
1: more time listening, I think we'd all we'd be better off, right? Right. Well, right. But it also sounds like you were in this uh, singular environment to be able to ask good questions of people who have very different experiences from your own. So they had an invitation to tell a story maybe they hadn't told before.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, one of my greatest, you come out of the military and you have a lot of regrets, unfortunately, and they keep you up at night sometimes, but one of the surprising ones that I didn't expect that I would have is that I wish that I had spent more time with the problem soldiers. So I was a commander, right. And so I was in charge of 110 guys and, um, we were a combat arm. So it was, it was before, you know, there, there was integration between the sexes and, and the combat arms. And, uh, if I had just spent more time with them, I feel like, and really listened to why they were having challenges or but you're so busy, right? But um, you know, it's listening to them and really understanding why, so that you could elevate them. Um, I don't know what made you trip. what made me trigger to say that, but I but I but I think that that this just came to my mind is is I wish that I had spent more time listening. You know, I think learning and, and listening, I think it's just it's such an important piece to it. And I wish that I had done more of it.
1: You, you said something about the people in the countries themselves where you were stationed and you were in a number of places. So uh, for those who don't know, can you kind of just quickly go through a litany because you've traveled? quite Yeah. A
0: yeah. Well, it's interesting, right? You come from Buffalo, New York, and it's I'm Italian and I'm a little bombastic and I like to I used to like to argue, and you know, I'm just like very East Coast, you know. And then you go to the military, which is actually very Southern, you know, as a, as a as a culture in a lot of ways. And so there's just a different culture about it. So I go to Fort Still, Oklahoma, right, which you said in Lawton, Lawton, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to meet people, right? You try to meet locals, and I'm just like. Such a different vibe from from most people. And so you go there and then I go to Germany, which was really cool. But another huge cultural shift, the place like Germany, where people are on, you know, I'll never forget sitting in a restaurant, and I mean by myself just drinking a coffee or something like that. People are staring at me like a very different cultural thing. It's okay to stare. Whereas in America, I mean, somebody stares at you. You think they want to, <laughs> you know. You think there's a big problem, and and also you'll sit at a coffee shop. Someone will sit across from you at your table, and that's just normal. <laughs> and so you have all these like cultural learnings that that sort of happen, mm-hmm. um, and then you go to Iraq. Right. So at first I deployed to Iraq from Germany and I'm this, you know, very naive, of course, Lieutenant, right. Which all that's the classic story—is the Lieutenant who's going to save the world. (laughs) And uh, I I can't say that the cliche was, was wrong for me, unfortunately, but, um, but it comes from a good place. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I'm on one of my first combat patrols and I'm, I'm, you know, it's exhilarating. I mean, it's really interesting experience to be there and, uh, you know, we we go to this little oasis village that's about 45 minutes away from our combat outpost. And uh, you know, we're rolling up on it, and you can see the palm trees. And as you get closer, you realize this, com- this village is completely destroyed. Wow. Completely destroyed, rubble. And uh you start rolling in, and then we start seeing craters everywhere throughout the village. And we go, there's a Sons of Iraq checkpoint. We the the US government Petraeus had this plan to hire young Iraqis to who who, you know, there's a problem with joblessness there. And so hire them to maintain checkpoints throughout throughout the throughout the area. And uh we come upon this checkpoint. And I'm like, man, this is great. What happened here? And they're explaining what happened. And I look over and there's this. There's this guy who's there and he's created, it's kind of hard to explain, but he's created this little like tent city for himself. And he was hanging like uh, laundry and things like that, had all these cups out to catch water and things. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Who's that guy? So yes. that guy, he has been here since this, this village was destroyed. He's the only person who's still here. There's a little town called Kazalia was the name of it. Wow. And so I'm like, can I go talk to him? Is he is he friendly? He's like, oh, yeah, you go talk to him. And so here I am, this dumb, naive lieutenant from Buffalo, New York, who's never really had major problems in his life. And I go over there, and I'm like, what you, you know, through an interpreter, of course. You know what are you what are you doing here? This this village is destroyed, I guess, like a year ago, and you're still here. And he's, you know, he said, like, walk with me. And we're walking through the village, dodging craters as we go. And he said. You know, this used to be a beautiful place. When I was a child, a French couple came and they took their honeymoon here. And we were shocked. We couldn't believe that some French couple would come all the way from France to our little village. um, And they spent a whole week there. And they would walk through the town. And he points out to the streets. And he said they were walking right there. And they would break bread with us and drink tea. And they stayed in this little place here. And he's walking through this little village. And he said, if I leave, it's like that never happened. The story of this village is dead. And I was like, you know, I get chills even talking about it. Right. Um, and I felt so inspired by that. And I'm thinking, you know, here we are. We're Americans. We come here. We, we're trying to tell them, uh, you know, we're doing the best that we can. Right. With the resources that we have. We we'll, we were good faith. And I'm thinking, well, what can we do here? We are, we came all this way, let's do some good. And, uh, but there's a lot that goes into that. So I, so I took that story, right? That is a story that he told me. And then I took that story. And then I went and told my commander back at the, at the Ford operating base who, who, uh, you know, he hadn't been there yet (laughs) and he was inspired by it. And then he told his commander. Who was inspired by that? And that transfer of that story went through three people. And it 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 encouraged us to focus resources on that village. And you know, we it came a long way. It was a long, it was a long journey by the time we left. We'd set up some irrigation there. The foundations were starting to get. You know, I don't know what, unfortunately, I don't know how a condition it's in. I can't just look on Google Maps, unfortunately. Um, But uh, so who knows what it's in. But but the idea of it is that that story was able to be retold three times and still have the power to influence somebody. And we allocated resources because of that story. And I feel like that's such a North Star for the way that I think about storytelling. And you'll notice he didn't tell me a Star Wars story. (laughs) There was no resolution. There was no rise and fall. It was just a snippet in time that was memorable and that I was able to easily transfer to other people. And that informs the way that we've built the software that we have is, is this idea of a story is, is not, is a series of snippets of moments in time over time. And, and there's so many different ways to tell it that, that, that are memorable and, 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 and create action, right. And inspire. And uh, you know, that's always been my North star is, is thinking about that and, trying to help nonprofits be able to accomplish that same thing.
1: One of the key parts of that is um, being open to the story, you know, going over and seeking it like you did with with the gentleman. But another part is drawing it out. And that's something that it sounds like that was easy to do in that case. He had a story to tell and he was willing to tell it and he was willing to tell it to you. That wasn't always the case. I'm sure during your service, everywhere you went. But um, as you said earlier, you're in places where people have stories that go way back, sometimes thousands of years. And so as you've gone through this experience in the service and now with all the storytelling work you've done, which we'll talk more about in a second, do you find there are some keys to helping people to uh, peel back the layers of the onion and tell their stories, even when they're reluctant, not, not to manipulate them to do so, but to give sure. them the oxygen, the space, And the interest that they're willing to dig deep and tell those stories
0: you know i think a lot about this and i wish i had a great answer but i just have some some ways that i think about it really it's just one is it's this idea of authenticity is when you you know okay let's say you're somebody who who goes to a food bank for whatever reason. Right. And we work with a lot of food banks at memory Fox and the one, the number one story they always want to collect is from the the visitors, from the clients. And that's the hardest. When I tell you the hardest story there is to collect, it's that one. And so we have this conversation, right? And and why, why is that? Well, because I think, you know, there's a, people are proud. People are proud. And now, among other things, right? There, there, there's a lot of reasons why people go to go to food banks or need those things, need, need certain services. But people are proud, right? And they don't like to necessarily talk about their deficiencies. um, And that that's not, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you may have, I mean, you, you maybe come to a point where you feel comfortable with those things. I have learned to feel comfortable about my flaws, right? But not everybody, like we talked about earlier, right? Every, a lot of people have, Blockages, and Mm -hmm. that 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 is not people. Just people who come to food banks. That is people who run companies. That is people who are teachers. That is everybody, right? It's a human condition. Mm -hmm. Um. So what I find is it's about it is about authenticity of when you are collecting a story from somebody or asking. You need to be truly authentic about what the purpose is, and not exploitative about the story itself. Mm -hmm. You know, you can pitch it, you know, you say, you know, this is for a fundraising campaign or, but I think a lot of times there's a, what is it? So I I have this idea of like, and I never really have fleshed it out and you maybe know more about it, but like some people are tourists in other people's misfortune and they just live in it. Right. And they just can't get enough of it. And they didn't experience these things. And, but they have this like need to be a part of it and like have those things in their lives and so they're they're perpetual tourists in other people's misfortune and i think you know humans can spot that a mile away and so if you're not authentic about and 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 present in your own mind of why you need this story if if you're flippant about it and you say well we need to get this story because you know the the executive director needs this or like the board need oh i, I got to go collect from these people you know what i mean like and and i don't want to say that a lot of people are like that but of course people, some people are like that right and maybe unconsciously they're like that and so don't be a tourist really, truly love the person authentically, and it will create that space. Um, that's my, that's, that's the way I, and that's with veterans too. Like if you're just trying to be a tourist in their experiences so that you can be entertained by a cool story um that's whatever, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? You might get a story, but a lot of times people could sniff that out. And like I, at a broader level. Yeah, and that. like and, and a broader level, like that's what social and I get, you know, it's so funny. I I I I have this company that is a helping nonprofits share stories with donors and on social media, right? But I hate social media. <laughs> I I just I I despise it with every bone in my body because because it's profit driven and it, it it pulls it is it is manufactured authenticity to pull content and so people are always arguing or they're fighting like that's what social media sells is is that that's the content <laughs> you know what i mean and and so like there's something antithesis to it um you know is this idea of social media wants like you know it wants Interaction. It doesn't care what that interaction is. As long as the temperature is up. Yeah. As long as the temperature is up, right? And it's created and they've driven us completely insane. And so my hope is that if we are collecting authentic stories, real, true, loving, authentic stories, and that's what gets onto social media. That's what's on social media and social media probably hates it. <laughs> I don't know. Right. And I talk about like, it's this monolith, but it kind of is, they're all architected the same way on. Um, maybe we make, maybe we force it to be better. And, and it's just a reflection of who we are. And so, you know, man, I got with, but I'm so passionate about that. It's like the idea that, yeah. you know, these profit-driven storytelling platforms—not—they're not storytelling platforms, but you know what I mean, like Twitter yeah. and Instagram. It's—it's it's about interaction, engagement, and and non-authenticity. Uh, that's for
1: sure. <laughs> you know, so, that, that manufactured so authenticity. If you've got um, an opportunity to to just uh, talk to with people, ask them good questions, listen, be authentic yourself, and listen authentically to what they have to say. One. Part that strikes me about what you said earlier, you've said it a couple of times, is that you're not that life isn't tidy. It's not a bunch of Star Wars stories where you yeah. know who the hero is and what happens at the end. And I'm sure that's true when you're collecting stories, both today with Emery Fox, but also throughout your life. That. Um, is there a tendency sometimes for us to try and get people to tell us the story in a tidy way? Yeah, was that well in a lot. Right. Because. Oh, I'm so
0: glad you asked this. All right. So I'm going to try to tease this out here because this is something I think, like it ties back to what we just talked about. St- stories, Star Wars stories are entertainment. Mm-hmm. They're entertainment. And if you're trying to tell stories, story, Star Wars stories, you're, 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 that's entertainment. But real life is not entertainment. It just exists, it just it happens, it unfolds. Right, And so on social media and like a lot of these things, it wants Star Wars stories because those are entertaining. But like, I think, and I know I am not influenced by Star Wars stories, I want to see the ums and the ahs. And the sad, not the sadness, right? Or the the glee or the whatever it is, the joy. I want to see the human authenticity. That's what I donate for. I want to see the reality. And I think as we, as as the world changes, right? AI is going to eat the world, whether we like it or not, right? And so what is going to be more valuable than anything on the planet in about nine years? Authenticity. And so if you have a story bank filled with authentic, real human stories, you'll be ready for it um, w- versus, you know, I think there's going to be a large push in about five years for people to use AI to create stories um, <laughs> on, you know, like you're right going to see it.
1: It feels like right, right, exactly. So, so so, uh, the the AI stories. I wasn't going to ask you about AI at all, but you're right. This is almost a kind of a competition in our heads for where those stories are going to come from, and can we just put it in Chat GPT and we issue something out? Um, What? How? How do you feel about the introduction of AI and the way people are using it in order to kind of fabricate this reality? you can imagine what I think about. I
0: come of a very humanistic tradition, right? I believe in like humans doing human things, getting out in nature, like living with uh, getting some dirt onto your feet and things like that, like spending time with your family out there. And like there's no a lot of good can come of technology. So, like my I thought about this so so my daughter spent the first month of her life in a children's hospital. And it was a very dramatic, obviously, moment in my life. And I was just mesmerized by the orchestra of technology in that room that kept her alive. So and all of that was created by technology. A hundred years ago, she would not have survived. Right. And so you can't go throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, and just hate technology, you know what I mean? But AI is a whole different animal because it eliminates the humanistic tradition in a lot of ways and replaces it. Um, And so, you know, who knows the way it's going to go, right? I'm not such a doomer that I think, look, we've been around for a long time and people have been pre- predicting our demise for a long time. And so is this just another thing or is this the thing? Who the heck knows, right? Certainly, it's different, but is it different? You know, that's that's and even the smartest person in the world is struggling with it right now. Nobody mm-hmm. knows which way technology is ever going to go, and uh, so and nothing is as inevitable as people think that it is. But but to me, like I'm going to keep feet dirt under my feet. I'm going to keep helping people tell real human, authentic stories, and and that's just where I'm going to plant my flag. And uh, and I think we all would do better if we did. And here's the thing nonprofits have to like, I think they're going to try to get pulled into this world of AI and things like that. And they already are. Right. And certain there's a lot of ways. Donor management, you know, maybe even some grant writing and things like that. Like it can be really helpful and, and make things more accessible. But when it comes to human stories, there's no faking it. You know, we're humans like we right. It's like teaching a bird to sing. Right. The bird just knows how to sing. They didn't don't. It doesn't go to school or not sing. It just sings. Right. We're yeah. humans. We tell stories. It's what we do. Although we, we have to tell stories, you have to remember how to listen to ourselves. You. Right. Listen to me. I'm talking about myself. I came into this like kind of nervous to talk about myself. and I'm just going because we're humans. <laughs> Yeah. We love telling stories, you know, we love being, we love being seen. People want to be seen. They want to be heard. And if you are a nonprofit and you are elevating people's voices, you can never go wrong. Never go wrong. If you are elevating the voices
1: of people in your community.
0: Um, yeah. So
1: Chris, there's, there's one thing, one thing that really strikes me about this is that, and it's not so much about AI, it's about technology and about what you do to get these authentic stories and then the impact they have for the nonprofit world, the world of social good. And and this is something I experienced just personally recently. Uh, I was looking for information about my dad uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, there's no Wikipedia entry for my father. (laughs) Um, And he did some good work. But uh, the reason I'm mentioning this is not because of my family, it's because of everybody's family. So in the case of the man you met there in Iraq, um, and he told you about the story of his street and why he still lives there and the people who came to visit, I suspect there's no Wikipedia entry on that man. So the only, the only story that came out of it was because you stopped and talked with him and then that story was shared with others. Um, in a world where so much of AI is informed by what's recorded, actually the majority of people's stories probably aren't recorded unless we record them. So you know, you started Memory Fox I think uh listening to other stories it was like stories of people who might be who are older uh who might encounter dementia is that right I mean so these yeah. stories are precious and fragile and if they're not recorded they're gone right Yeah that that actually was the way we started it so we originally uh we built it as a
0: way to interview pre-dementia elderly to get their life stories and it would sort of be a guided guided tour. And um, so there's, 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 (laughs) there's business ideas. And then there's the actual, like bringing a business to market. (laughs) And I was a little naive about how to bring that to market. And I didn't know anything, right. I was just an army guy, right. I just, I had no business experience at all. And I didn't really, couldn't really figure out how to bring that to market. I still think it's a great idea. And I think someone should do it. Um, And maybe some people are now, but yeah, like those are precious. I mean, they're, they're, they're right. They're infinitely precious and every that, and that's gotta be everybody's North star. And we live in this world now where like, oh, it's all about fame and like, and, and, and and, like standing out on TikTok and things like that. And if you don't, you don't exist. And I know like a lot of famous people have, have a lot of uh, issues with this is they feel like they have to be constantly out there. And if they don't, if they take a year off, it's like they disappear and they could never get it back. Um, you know, I think that's probably a big challenge for them. But like normal people are just living their normal lives telling stories around a dinner table, right? Or or sit next to each other in a bar stool. And uh, yeah, you know, there's no way to capture those. I mean, you know, we had this idea that you could like slap a a phone down and it would like record stories and then zip them up and turn them into like little mini stories. Um, I actually, the first time we ever prototyped memory Fox, I had a little voice recorder and we went to my, my, my great aunt's retirement facility mm-hmm. and we just passed it around and they all told stories. You can tell these stories had never really been told. And they—they they all came from a different generation, right? That were more buttoned up. But man, you put that—you put that recorder in front of them, and all of a sudden they just light up and they're telling stories. Um, but yeah, I mean, for a nonprofit, like they have at the end of the day, they still have business—a business, a business a, things that need to be done to grow revenue. <laughs> you know what I mean? And technology does help that, right? They still need to do these tasks. Is to is to is to inspire donors to to join their community, but also may remain in their community. Um, keep you know and make sure their board is informed of the stories being told, so that they can make good decisions um, you know, et cetera, right. To build your community on Facebook and stuff like that. So, so, and they, so you have to leverage the technology in a way, but the way we built this company is to do it in as much a humanistic way as possible to, to put the storyteller at the forefront, to help guide them a little bit so that they can do it ethically. Cause what are most, what do people used to do? Hire an agency, Mm -hmm. put people in front of a camera, put some makeup on them <laughs> so that they look good on the camera and they'll right. tell the story, right? Cost $10,000, um, you know, whatever. Right. And then you have to pay to get it all edited and stuff like that. Whereas what we do, what we think about it is it's just raw authentic content is like the ums and the odds. Cause that to me is true authenticity. And that's truly respecting people's stories. When you dress up a story, you are not respecting the storyteller. You're changing the story. When you put makeup on them, you change the story. When you take a bunch of lights and put it on them, you change the story. It's like, uh, what is it? Uh, oh, man. The Heisenberg, I'm going to say this wrong and someone will hate this. I believe the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, right, is when you view, is the idea of like, you, uh, and it's, it's been bastardized probably in a lot of different ways. So I'm going to mess this up. But the idea is like you can't watch something and video something without affecting it. Right. Right. And so if you shove a camera in front of someone's face or you, you know, put a bunch of ma- you know what I mean? Like you're yeah. you're changing, you're changing the, Lord, the story. Right? The story. Right. It's messy. It's gritty. You are a nonprofit that is doing the Lord's work. Right. And so show the authentic authenticity. Right. Don't feel the need for these overproduced stories. Nobody wants to see it. Nobody wants to see it anymore, right? It's like the the Kardashian. Remember the Kardashian Pepsi commercial where
1: oh, she? Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, and everybody was so mad about it, right? Of course they were. Right? It's like that fake corporate authenticity that corporations of. And that's another thing about. It, oh man, I could just rant all day, right? You got me. Um, <laughs> it's very hard for nonprofits right now, right? Because they need to stand out on social media. And right. Who are they fighting against for eyeball- eyeballs? They're fighting against brands. And what brands have done is they've hijacked authenticity and they have this like faux authenticity that is product centered and is money centered, you know, right, right, to get people to buy products. And so it's the opposite, the antithesis of authenticity, but they're so good at it, right? So, but what a nonprofit, nonprofits end up trying to chase that. They try to chase these brands and try to look like them when what they need to be doing is just sh- showing a quick snippet of their food bank, of people loading boxes, of they're not, they're not right, a volunteer just telling a quick story about how beautiful the day was and how inspired they were to talk to people, or like a constituent with their daughter at a, at a uh, you know, at, at a camp, right? Like, ums and ahs and the whole deal, right? Show, don't try to be like these big brands. Don't fight them just because the algorithm wants that. Flip the model, go authentic, go completely opposite and dedicate yourself to authentic video. And and, uh, the algorithm likes that too. It's just people are afraid of it because they measure themselves on, on these impossible standards, marketing budgets in the millions. Um,
1: that spend all their money trying to look like they don't have a marketing budget. <laughs> so, so let me ask you about about this, wh- where it's going? Because as you just said, if it's a battle for authenticity, although albeit a lot of that's faux authenticity, like you yeah. said, yeah. right? The Pepsi commercial. Um, it, the, that uh, at the same time, everybody's hurtling forward as fast as they can, especially now because we've seen this decline in the percentage of people who give to charity to traditional charity anyway um and that's again happened this year as well as the past 20 years every single year we see a decline so people are obviously hungry for real life just like you are and i am um so where is this going how do we make sure that the real stories also get in front of people so they can respond to them in a way that makes sense for them, either as donors or volunteers or active participants in some way? How do we get the stories you're talking about in front of people? How do we make sure that the equivalent of you walking up to that man in Iraq happens for a person sitting in their living room in Albuquerque um, to hear a story about a food bank? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the big question.
0: And I think it's an uphill battle. Right. And I think you just touched on something is that individual donation. And there's a lot of reasons that could be why I think there's a lot of speculation as to why um, people are in a particularly dour mood these these days. Um, And I think a lot of that is because of social media and because of this like new world that we live in where there's fake authenticity. And it's just people and not to get everything goes back to Bruce Springsteen for me. I'm such a big Bruce Springsteen (laughs) fan, but like people want a reason to believe. People want a reason to believe in each other, and 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 believe in themselves, and believe that they can be a part of something. And I think you know, you look at politics, right? And you look at all these, and of course, that's a big, broad thing, right? Mm-hmm. But like, people have used authenticity and used these platforms to generate outrage, which generates dollars, which generates momentum, and for political causes and things like that. And they have to do it, right? It's their job. They had they, they that's how you grow, but like. If you're capturing those 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 authentic stories, but you can you still use the same platforms, but dedicate yourself to authenticity, it will stand out. People will see it. People will notice the authenticity because, like I said, it, you know what? It's kind of like what I said earlier. Is like if you ask somebody for a story and you don't come from a place of love and authenticity and empathy, people will spot you a mile away. Humans can spot a fake a mile away. And people think AI is going to make that difficult. But I think it's going to be harder than people think as as people are more clever. And so if you dedicate yourself to authenticity, and sharing just interesting stories, and it could be snippets that tell a greater story, and get that on social media, get that directly through your email lists, build those email lists that are direct To your to your people that don't go through a medium that's algorithm driven um, you know, come up with clever ways to deliver those stories. I mean, that's one of the things that we think a lot about is like, how do we get these stories directly to the people that need to hear these stories without going through the intermediate of social media, which is profit algorithm driven um. You know, and, and all that is to say, I don't have a great answer. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think it's, we just, you just have to focus on North stars, like, like authenticity and it will play out. It it, it just happens organically as people's crave authenticity these days. And if you, if you dedicate yourself to that as true love and empathy and, and authenticity, you can't go wrong. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think that's you just have to have these like spiritual north stars and how you 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 choose to tell the stories about your organization. Um, and I think that stands out. If you're just showing videos of the executive director talking for five minutes and then maybe a couple like glossy videos of people talking about how great the nonprofit is, like everybody's seen that before. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just doesn't, that's that's Pepsi. That's Pepsi. But if you show a video of like, heck, it could be people standing in line. It could be anything, right? It tells a story. People standing in line could be a great story, right? Look how many people are here at this food bank. You know what I mean? They wave. Like that tells a story. Like that is a story. A picture is a thousand words. And people think that's not a Star Wars. That's a Bruce Springsteen story. People on the standing in a line is a Bruce Springsteen. So he'd write a whole song about it.
1: Um, what's what's your you favorite know. Springsteen song?
0: Oh, I, it's "Hungry Heart." Yeah. <laughs> as big and wild, you know, because I used to not like his like bigger songs. Yeah. Um, when I was younger, I thought they were kind of corny, but uh, as I get older, right, I really everybody does have a hungry heart. Like it could be anybody, and what a beautiful story to tell is like the idea that it doesn't matter you're black, white. Anybody, right? Does your gender, doesn't matter. Like everybody just wants to be loved and everybody wants to be heard. Everybody has a hungry heart. And it's like you keep that as your North Star as a nonprofit, like and tell stories about that. Like that's what people want. Yeah. That's what people want is they want that, 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 that authenticity that shows that. Side of people. Um, so what do you? Because still nobody, that's that's is, not it, right? You look on social media. I could pop up Twitter right now, and I would right. see a hundred angry stories from people who want to sow discontent, and like that's not what nonprofits do. Like they're they're doing the Lord's work of bringing people together in love and connection, and like. They you chosen to dedicate your life to giving and love and things like that versus profit-driven, which people, you know, you find your North Star, you, you do what you got to do to survive. But um what a privilege, right? To work in nonprofits. I can every day I wake up and I'm so glad. Could have go worked at a bank or I could have done whatever, but here we are, right? Like
1: this is it. This is where real human love happens. So this is three years for you with this particular incarnation of your, of your life. Uh, But always stories are a piece of your life. Clearly. What are you still hungry for? What do you imagine this takes you?
0: I will tell you that like, I am obsessed with how many cool things that we could build. (laughs) Like, it's just, it's so cool working in technology and like, and, and, and just building the team. Like, I never thought that I would ever have as good of a job as when I was a company commander in the army where like, you just, you have the power to do cool stuff, get the people in the right places to do the right things and like build culture and all these amazing things. work with just such awesome people. I never thought I would get that, but here I am. And like, so like, to me, it's about building a great team of loving people who work together, who are have have great North stars. I keep using that word, but I love it. Like these great North stars of like love and giving and empathy and teamwork and 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 helping, right? And 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 that informs the technology. And there's just so much cool stuff you can build when you're empathetic. A lot of technology is rent seeking. <laughs> it's like kids in Silicon Valley who went to Stanford. And this is the type of stuff that gets me in trouble, but I don't care. <laughs> um, you know, who, who have a new way to take five percent of a market, and and then grow scale that, and then now they take five percent of a market segment, that money, and then it goes to a bunch of rich people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's that's a lot of what it is. But what a privilege to work in the nonprofit space, where that's not how this works. You can't get away with that stuff. You can't even get those investors because they don't want to invest in the nonprofit space. It's so hard to raise money in the nonprofit space because venture capitalists are like, not a chance. (laughs) And so the technology, you have to build it organically through direct customer engagement and like having a really sharp team that knows how to prioritize features. You know, and so you and you're always robbing Peter to pay Paul to like build this company piece by piece. But what an exhilarating thing. What an honor to build awesome software for awesome organizations that are doing beautiful work. I mean, it's a privilege, right, to continue a life of service. Um, in a way that I never, I mean, I never, when I got out of the army, the first thing I did, I started plowing driveways <laughs> in the snow in Buffalo and shoveling because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so you, you know, what a
1: privilege. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by Donor Search, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Sang. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.